welcome to City Breaks London, episode 16, The East End and the Docks. This is more than halfway through the City Breaks London series now. We've been to all the big hitters, Westminster, Buckingham Palace, that sort of thing. We've been on a literary visit or two to Bloomsbury in search of Charles Dickens and Shakespeare. And now I want to embark on a tour of some of the slightly less visited areas, but where there's still plenty to see, plenty to do, plenty to learn. So we're going to start with the East End and the docks. Quite difficult to define what that actually is. I looked up on a couple of websites for definitions. One read, it's a place known throughout the world. It spawned one of the UK's most popular soap operas. That's East Enders, of course, if you're listening outside the UK. But, says the quote on Londonist.com, where exactly is the East End? You might more easily pin down a jelly deal than a precise definition. So I went to Encyclopedia Britannica. They'll know, I thought, and their definition read as follows. It's a traditional area of London, lying east of Shoreditch High Street, and a whole list of other places they name, and it lies mainly in the inner London borough of Tower Hamlets. OK, if I'm thinking about my own definition, I think of particular places. The Olympic Park, Whitechapel, the docks. Not really traditionally touristy places, except perhaps for Brick Lane, but nevertheless an area that today is really quite trendy. The Rough Guide, for example, talks about its, quote, creative goings-on in warehouses, art previews, edgy nightlife. So, definitely an area worth an episode. It's always been a different area of London from, say, the West End, an area that's attracted trade and industry and shipping. And there's a reason for that. I read somewhere the sentence, Londoners built their mansions in the West and their factories in the East. And the reason was because the East was downwind, so it would take all the horrible smells away from the posher areas where people were living. And it's an area that really owes its great expansion to the Victorian age, because under the British Empire, in her reign, trade and heavy industry took off. Many more goods were arriving in the city from far-flung corners of the world. New docks were needed. The new St Catherine's docks, for example, opened in 1827. It had long been an area which attracted immigrants, for example the Huguenots from France in the 1600s, but in the 19th century that really took off. Particularly, from 1870 or so onwards, thousands of Jewish settlers arriving from Poland, Romania and Russia to escape pogroms. This was where they arrived, by ship, and by and large this was where they put down roots. So from then on and all through the first half of the 20th century, most of the people living in the East End were employed at the docks. That came to an end, however, in World War II because the area was so badly bombed. And yes, it was rebuilt afterwards, but it was never the same. Through the 1960s, new waves of immigrants arriving, Bangladeshis particularly, Bengalis. And today, the area has a very ethnically diverse flavour. Mosques, curry houses and so on, but just more recently, it's begun to be gentrified as well. So that means the appearance of vintage clothing shops, cafes, street art, and a bit of a hub for start-up companies. So really an area that's changed so much over time. And this is typified, for example, in a building on the corner of Fournier Street and Brick Lane, currently the Brick Lane Mosque, but which started life in 1743 as a Huguenot church. It became a Wesleyan chapel, it became a synagogue in 1897, and finally a mosque in the 1970s. So that just typifies the different waves of people 
who have arrived and settled there. So, where to start? I'm going to take a look at the three main communities who've settled there over history and talk a little bit about each of them. And I want to start with what you might call the Old East End, a community of homegrown Londoners, Cockneys, if you will, who lived there alongside all their new neighbours from other parts. Here, for an idea of what I mean, is a quotation from a website called history.co.uk. On the surface, we think of it as a tight-knit community inhabited by chirpy Cockney barrow boys and flower girls, playfully peppering their sales patter with rhyming slang. But beneath that is a more sinister tale, one of overcrowding, poverty, violent crime, grimy industry and social unrest. This is the East End that emerged in the Victorian age and which still lingers in the popular imagination. As the population began to rocket in the 19th century, lots of the elegant Huguenot houses were divided up into tiny little dwellings and soon the area was overcrowded and run down populated by people on very low wages, whose only working options were usually casual labour, so a day at a time, or piecework. Disease was rife. There was a cholera epidemic, for example, in 1866, which swept through the East End and killed 3,000 people. A survey conducted in the 1880s by the social reformer Charles Booth concluded that 13% of the East End population was chronically poor, a class for whom, quote, Decent life is not imaginable. There were well-known philanthropists connected to the area, Dr Bernardo, for example, who founded the Ragged Schools and, following that, the whole series of children's homes, William Booth, the Methodist lay preacher who founded the Salvation Army. They both started their work here in the East End, but the battles were enormous. As late as 1925, a foreign visitor, one Carol Capek, was writing in a book called Letters from England the following description of the East End. Here are miles and miles of grimy houses, hopeless streets, a superfluity of children, gin palaces and Christian shelters. Miles and miles of grimy houses where the whole street consists of nothing but a vast horizontal tenement. Factories, gasometers, railway lines, clay patches of waste ground, storehouses for goods and storehouses for human beings. And that is just the distressing thing about the East End. There is too much of it, and it cannot be reshaped. The area was known for crime, for immorality, for drunkenness, for violence, gangs, prostitutes, robbers, all remembered today in people's imagination because of the one story of Jack the Ripper from 1888. Never caught, he carried out a series of grisly murders, his victims being Whitechapel prostitutes. In the late summer and early autumn of 1888, there was talk of little else in East London. Theories abounding as to who this could be. The person was never caught, but theories included could it have been a Jew, a butcher, a member of the royal family? And there's been a series of theories and books and papers about this written ever since. You may be interested to know, or you may find it grisly to hear, that you can go on Jack the Ripper tours of this area of London and see exactly where all these things happened. I have to say that's one thing I haven't done in London, but I was interested to read the following from a series of lectures in the Great Courses selection from American universities, where someone was pointing out that while you may not want to know all the gory details of what happened to these poor women, it is a topic from which you can learn, quote, a lot about Victorian London 
by focusing in on the victims, the accused groups, and the general social and cultural environment. The victims were all women, nearly all in their forties, single after broken marriages, fallen into prostitution, or heavy drinkers. These women were also victims of the culture that developed around the working class in London. I know that relatively recently there has been a book published called The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, written by Hallie Rubenholt. And that I would like to read. It opens with the lines, Roughly twelve months lay between the Queen's Golden Jubilee summer and Polly Nichols's murder on August 31st, 1888. And what follows is a picture of East London as it was then, and as many biographical details as could be found about the five women. Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Kelly. In the 1950s and 60s, the area was equally notorious for criminals, notably the twins, Ronnie and Reggie Cray. Perhaps the most feared of all, two men who ran a ruthless gang, responsible for murders, robbery, protection rackets, you name it. If you research them, you'll find gory details, like the fact that they murdered, or I think the book said actually executed, in inverted commas, a member of their own gang who owed them some money. One Jack the Hat McVitty was stabbed to death so violently that he was left pinned by the throat to a wooden floor. Perhaps almost equally larger than life was Frankie Fraser, who spent 42 years in 20 different prisons and secure hospitals for his various criminal activities, and who became well-known after the World War II because he started touring the country doing a show, if you can believe this, called An Evening with Frankie Fraser, and because he offered gangland tours, as he called them, of the East End, and he would take you to the house where the Cray brothers were arrested, or the road where Jack the Hat was murdered. All of this culminating in a stop at a pub where, he explained, customers could enjoy a drink and sandwiches. But it wasn't all notoriety. Generations of ordinary families made their homes in the East End, of course. And to get a picture of just one of those families, you could read a book called Constance Street by Charlie Connolly, which is the story of his own family, so his great-grandparents, Nellie and Harry, who married at the beginning of the 20th century, their many children and grandchildren, one of whom was Charlie's own mother. He pieced the story together from reminiscences from the great-aunts, so they were Nellie and Harry's daughters, born at the beginning of the 20th century, and from a little map of Constant Street, given to him by his great-aunt Joan, who told him it was Constant Street as I remember it. Constant Street having been a victim of the Blitz, and completely destroyed in World War II. Charlie Connolly introduces the book by saying Constant Street was, quote, a typical street at the heart of one of the poorest areas London ever saw, and that really is saying something. He describes the family life of people who worked often at the Royal Albert Dock or in the local factories, Tate and Lyle, the jam factory, the India rubber works, a world of cobbled streets and horse-drawn carts. It is largely family life, the story of the various generations and what happened to them, but it's got historical references too. So there are scenes at the end of the Great War, during the general strike, for George V's Silver Jubilee in 1935, and, at the end of the book, a description of Black Saturday, when the German bombs arrived and destroyed Constant Street. Here, for example, is what Charlie Connolly writes about Armistice Day in 1918. Quote, 
Constant Street celebrated the armistice like everywhere else, with an outpouring of joy, a wave of relief, and, eventually, quiet reflection about those who weren't coming home. At 11am, on the 11th of November 1918, the bells of St Mark's rang for the first time in nearly four years. Every factory siren and hooter sounded, and the ships in the docks sounded their horns in an ear-splitting display of celebration. It was a horrendous racket, but for the people of the island it was the most joyous thing they'd heard in years. People streamed out of the factories and industrial works, and men ran home to strip off their work clothes and don their best suit and linen collar. Work stopped in the docks, and barrels of brandy were breached. The pubs of Silvertown threw open their doors, and Constant Street, filled with its people, embracing, cheering, laughing, barely able to believe that a war, which seemed to have carried on forever, had finally come to an end. A few chapters later, there's a description of the street party held in Constant Street for the Silver Jubilee celebration of King George V. So, the 6th of May, 1935. There are descriptions of men fixing bunting, red, white and blue, of course, across the street from one end to the other. Union flags everywhere, tables down the middle of the street for a tea party, all the children in paper hats. A real celebration and a real contrast to the tough life that the people of that street and indeed all of East London led in the 1930s. As Charlie Connolly explains, quote, Things were tough on Constant Street in the mid-30s and in Silvertown as a whole. There were whole streets that were worse off now that Tate and Lyle had closed their Playstow refinery turning out 2,300 workers and shared 600 jobs from the Silvertown works, and the docks were not nearly as busy. Silvertown was full of unemployed men, wandering from gate to factory gate on the off chance of some casual work, standing listlessly in doorways or whiling away the days on benches, or, if they had the price of a drink, their lunch times in Cundy's. That was the pub. The time passed slowly in Silvertown in those days, it was still measured in the clank and rumble of production and the whistles of the ships, but any jauntiness that sound might once have feasibly contained was absent now. Poverty and overcrowding are characteristic of the greater part of the Canning Town and Silvertown areas, said one contemporary report, which make what is perhaps the largest patch of unbroken depression in East London. Of course, this is all gone now, but one place you can visit to give you a little bit of an idea of what life was like, is the Ragged School Museum, just a few minutes' walk from Mile End Tube Station. It's in the same warehouse where Dr Bernardo opened his largest ragged school, and it tells its story. Thomas Bernardo came to London from Dublin in the 1860s, and set up the first of his ragged schools in 1867, wanting to provide an education for free for children who otherwise wouldn't get one. When it was realised how destitute some of the children who were attending were, then the first home was set up too, in 1870, leading to all the other Dr Bernardo's homes. The story is told that on one occasion, an 11-year-old boy came to the, one of the homes and was turned away because it was full. Two days later, he was found dead of exposure, and Dr Bernardo made then his vow, quote, No destitute child will ever be refused admission. When he died in 1905, there were 96 Dr Bernardo's homes, looking after more than 8,000 children. If you go to the Ragged School Museum to visit, you'll find that they've recreated a Victorian classroom, where you can see what conditions were like, 
There's a Victorian East End kitchen as well, complete with a tin bathtub. So, that's the old East End. What about Jewish East London? Again, I'm going to focus on the 19th century, when big waves of Russian and East European Jews began to arrive. Although, in fact, there had been Jews in London since the days of William the Conqueror. Those who arrived in the 19th century were known to be very poor indeed. There's a street today called Jewellery Street, which actually used to be called Poor Jewellery Street. There was an organisation known as the Board of Guardians of the Jewish Poor, who existed to do what they could to help, perhaps making loans to people who wanted to set up as independent traders. They ran soup kitchens, for example one in Brick Lane, which we know that in January 1858 was feeding an average of a 1,000 people a week. They opened Jewish free schools. And by the 1890s, there really was a Jewish feel to the whole area. I read a description of Brick Lane, where many of the Jews lived. Shops with a Jewish flavour, selling salt beef, a jeweller's, Rosenberg's the jeweller's, a market on Sundays, which would have been unheard of in other parts of London, but the government had given special dispensation for this because they knew that Jews couldn't shop at the usual markets on Saturday because they were observing the Sabbath. You would have seen posters and newspapers printed in Yiddish. You perhaps would have passed the Russian vapour baths in Brick Lane. Steam baths, especially popular with the men finishing work on a Friday evening, who'd go there before they went to the synagogue for prayers. There's actually lots of the remains of Jewish East London to be found, but maybe the best way to see it is to go on one of the guided tours that various companies offer. They'll probably take you to Brick Lane and to Petticoat Lane, which was the centre of the Jewish rag trade, perhaps walk you past the building that was a soup kitchen in Brune Street, and maybe take you into one of the synagogues. When I went, we visited the Bevis Mark Synagogue, built in 1701, the dates on the front, but it's there in the date from the Jewish calendar too, which reads 5461. An absolutely beautiful building inside, old oak benches, seven chandeliers for the seven days of the week, the central one being the Shabbat chandelier, proper chandeliers lit by candles, although it's explained to us that these days that's usually only done for weddings and special celebrations. We were shown the twelve columns, which represent the twelve tribes of Israel, and the ten candles, which represent the ten commandments. They are written up above the ark in Hebrew, alongside the words, Know before whom thou standest. It was explained to us that this particular synagogue was the Disraeli family's synagogue in the 19th century, until Benjamin Disraeli's father fell out with the management, something about a dispute over money, and took himself and his family away and had all his children baptised. A fact worthy of note, because otherwise his son, Benjamin, would never have gone on to become the British Prime Minister, Jews at that time not being allowed to take such a post. There's also the Sandys Row Synagogue in Spitalfields, London's oldest Ashkenazi synagogue, whose website has details about tours that they offer, some of which will take you round Jewish East London as well as visiting the synagogue itself. Other things which might be pointed out to you that you might otherwise miss, various blue plaques for people like Bud Flanagan, whose original name I'm afraid I don't think I can pronounce. Suffice to say that his surname was Weintrop. You may know of him as a comedian and leader of the Crazy Gang. There's a blue plaque too for the poet Isaac Rosenberg, killed in action in World War I. Perhaps you'll be taken to see the Kindertransport Memorial at Liverpool Street Station, which was erected to commemorate the 10,000 or so children, mainly Jewish, 
who escaped Nazi persecution and arrived in London, seeking safety. They arrived by boat at Harwich, mainly in the years 1938 and 1939, and then taken by train to London's Liverpool Street Station, where they were taken in by British families, with whom they lived for the duration of the war. Many, in fact, never saw their parents again. There's a plaque by the memorial to the children of the Kinder Transport, which reads, In gratitude to the people of Britain for saving the lives of 10,000 unaccompanied, mainly Jewish children, who fled from Nazi persecution in 1938 and 39. Whosoever rescues a single soul is credited as though they had saved the whole world. There's also the Cable Street mural, which is on the wall of the old library in Cable Street, commemorating the Battle of Cable Street, which took place in 1936, and saw the Jewish people who lived in the area joining with the dock workers to prevent black shirts marching through the East End of London. And thirdly, there's Asian East London. I found in a recently published rough guide the sentence The southern half of Brick Lane remains pretty staunchly Bangladeshi. Bright-coloured sari fabrics line the clothes shop windows, numerous curry houses. All of that reflecting the period from the 1970s when the newly arriving immigrants tended to come from Bangladesh and who in fact had such an effect on their new home area that the electoral ward of Spitalfields was renamed in 2001 and is now known as Spitalfields and Banglatown. Many of them opened restaurants, Asian clothing shops, etc., and really changed the atmosphere. This century, though, there have been signs that this is changing yet again. Gentrification is setting in. One recent report said that in the mid-2000s, there were 60 or so curry restaurants in Brick Lane, but that by early 2020, only 23 were left. What's replacing them? Here's a list. Hipster cafes, vintage clothes shops, delicatessens, boutique chocolatier. To the extent that, this year, in 2021, a campaign has been launched, hashtag Save Brick Lane, whose stated aim is, quote, to preserve a cultural jewel in the heart of London's East End. There are several mosques, including one in Brick Lane, the first one having been completed in 1985 after a long fundraising campaign, Friday sermons are delivered often in Arabic, Bengali and English, and they offer all sorts of other services to the community too. Schools, a library, fitness centres, English classes, exhibitions, etc. etc. A book which gives a real flavour of life for the Bangladeshi community in Brick Lane is entitled exactly that, Brick Lane, by Monica Ali. The story of Nazneen, a Bangladeshi immigrant who comes to London to start married life with the older man that her family has arranged for her to be married to, and finds immediately that life in a cramped flat in a high-rise block in London's East End is nothing like life at home. Here, for example, is a description of what she sees looking out of her window. It was hot, and the sun fell flat on the metal window frames and glared off the glass. A red and gold sari hung out of a top-floor flat in Rosemead Block, a baby's bib and miniature dungarees lower down. The sign screwed to the brickwork was in stiff English capitals and the curlicues beneath were Bengali. No dumping, no parking, no ball games. Two old men in white Punjabi pyjama and skull caps walked along the path, slowly, as if they did not want to go where they were going. A paragraph or two later, there's a description of Nazneen 
preparing the evening meal. She's already done the lamb curry with tomatoes and new potatoes. She's got a chicken dish from the freezer, but, quote, there was still the doll to make and the vegetable dishes, the spices to grind, the rice to wash, and the sauce to prepare for the fish that Chanu would bring this evening. A little bit later on, there's a description of various women from the Bangladeshi community discussing the difficulties that another woman they know is having settling in. Quote, the husband is working, but still she cannot fill her stomach. In Bangladesh, one salary can feed twelve, but Jorina cannot fill her stomach. One of the others says, where is she going? To the garment factory? And back comes the answer. Mixing with all sorts. Turkish, English, Jewish, all sorts. I am not old-fashioned, said Mrs. Islam. I don't wear burqa. I keep purda in my mind, which is the most important thing. Plus, I have cardigans and anoraks and a scarf for my head. But if you mix with all these people, even if they are good people, you have to give up your culture to accept theirs. That's how it is. Poor Jorina, said Razia. Can you imagine, she said to Nazneen, who could not. So then, a little bit of an insight into all three of those communities. And I wanted to finish the episode by just talking briefly about the docks themselves. Built then mainly in the 19th century, with names like West India Docks, because that was the one where sugar and other imports from the West Indies arrived in London. Or the Millwall Docks, built in 1868, because cheap foreign grain was going to flood into Britain after the repeal of the Corn Laws. The Royal Victoria Docks, built in 1855, to link to the new railways, so with rails actually running along its quays, and the Royal Albert Docks from 1880, specially designed to accommodate the new ships replacing sailing ships, large iron and steam ships. The Docks, a place where the lives of the people of the East End of London were so influenced, many of them were exploited, Long hours, poor wages, terrible housing conditions. The bosses knew that there would be a constant supply of new immigrants from abroad, so they weren't going to be short of labour. The work was casual. Dockers were employed one day at a time. There were seasonal variations. There were strikes. In the 1870s, the dockers went on strike and got their wages raised from four to five pence an hour. 1889 saw the great dock strike, when skilled workers came out in sympathy for the casual workers. And between them, they managed to get wages raised again to sixpence an hour. And an agreement was made that contracts would be for a minimum of four hours' work at a time. I've already mentioned the terrible times of the 1930s, when East End families were so badly hit by the Depression, the docks had very little work. And although they didn't know it at the time, those were the last few years of the old docks, before they were destroyed by German planes following up the Thames to find them and obliterating them. People who were there at the time have written of the inferno which was unleashed, the fact that you could smell the blistering paint on the boats and the burning rubber in the warehouses. I saw a description of planks of wood blown into the air, quote, like matchsticks. The docks were rebuilt after the war, but it was the 1980s regeneration programme led by the London Docklands Development Corporation, which made it much more as it is today. And to gain an insight into what life has been like, both in past times and more recently, you can't do better than visit the Docklands Museum at West India Dock, which explains the history of London as a port from Roman times right up until today. So there are 12 galleries, all arranged in chronological order, and a big focus on the 19th century, 
when London was the biggest port in the world. There's absolutely all sorts of information on the ships, on the trades that they allowed to happen. You can learn, for example, how barrels were made, how bottling plants worked, how tobacco was weighed. It's the history of the East End too, though, with special themes at times. For example, musicals in the East End. And particularly chiming with current themes, the gallery named London, Sugar and Slavery, which tells the story of the 12 million Africans shipped from their homelands, of the terrible lives they were forced to lead on the ships and on the plantations. Tells the story too of those who set up the Society for the Abolition of Slavery and of those who opposed them, knowing how much employment was linked to slavery for everybody from ship workers to Lloyds of London who ran the insurance for the shipping trade. You can learn too how the compensation which was paid to slave owners after the practice was abolished helped to fund the Industrial Revolution. It's a story with so many devastating details. But for me, one of the details that really stuck in my mind was the idea that compensation was paid to slave owners for the business that they were losing, but not to the slaves themselves. So the Docklands Museum is yet another place where you can get a slightly different take on the great city of London. That's it then, the East End of London, so many different things feeding in to make it the place it is. And for that reason, I think quite difficult to get your head round if you don't already know something about it. What to do? I think walking tours might be the way to go. There are lots on offer from various different companies. I tend to favour the London Walks Company, having been on several of those and enjoyed them very much. But there are others too. You just need to go a-googling. And if you do, you'll find, for example, street art tours. That's something I haven't even mentioned yet. East London has been home to some of the most influential graffiti artists. No less a person than Banksy himself lived here when he first came to London. There are also food tours aplenty, often combining with telling you quite a bit about the history of East London too. A review I read of one said, quote, We had curry on Brick Lane, fish and chips at Poppy's, an East End institution, corned beef bagels at the famous Bagel Bake, and more. And a second person on, I think it was TripAdvisor, has been on an East End food tour and been to a bagel shop, had fish and chips, been to a curry house and then finished off with, and I quote, salted caramel tart and a nice cup of tea. There are specialist food tours for Indian food in Brick Lane. There are tours of historic pubs. And if it's your thing, there are also Jack the Ripper tours and something called a gangster walking tour. One website I'd like to mention specially aladyinlondon.com, I'll put the address on the show notes, which has the most comprehensive London walk section, 20 plus on offer, and including a street art tour of East London and walks through Shoreditch and Spitalfields. Very informative, lots of great pictures. Go find. So yes, it's a complex area. I hope I've managed to give something of the flavour, or rather multiple flavours, of what you can find in the East End that you feel a little bit wiser than perhaps you were and have enjoyed the visit. There are certainly things I haven't mentioned, the Olympic Park for example, and the wonderful array of street markets to be found in this area. I have a feeling we might be popping back to some of those in the shopping episode which is to come in a few weeks time. For the moment then, thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll join me next week too when we're off to Hampstead and Highgate. So back to more rural London, back to posh London. But for the moment, 
Thank you for your company today and goodbye.